they said, you know, you want to see Sputnik 1? And I went, yeah, I saw it. I saw it flew over COVID. And they said, no, no, we made two. We have one of them in the warehouse and we're going to put it in a museum here fairly soon, but would you like to come and see it? And I, I took that as a great honor. And it was a scene right out of Indiana Jones where, where these crates piled high and they opened it up and there set what could have the been. The other Sputnik. Yeah. There it was. And it very was cool. Funny. And I didn't care if I touched it and I did. And my fingerprints are on it. <laughs> I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This is part two of my conversation with the purposeful adventurer, Homer Hickam. If you haven't heard part one, I'd recommend you check it out before listening to this second part. You'll find it wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can head over to kathysullivanexplores.com to get the link. In this second episode, we'll dive more into his work at NASA in the huge water tanks that are used to train astronauts for spacewalks. If you listened to the first episode, you'll recall that Homer and I met at the large water tank in Huntsville, Alabama, back when I was training for my first spaceflight. In this episode, he'll share his own experience working underwater in spacesuits and talk about training astronauts and even celebrities to work underwater. I'm sure you'll find his insights about cross-cultural leadership useful and be intrigued by his perspective on the emerging space tourism industry. Let's shift gears a bit and dive, pun intended, more into the, the space side of things. Back in your early days, like again, we're talking late 70s, very early 80s, the shuttle program is still in its final development stages astronauts and tests that are being done up at the water tank in Marshall are still being done in leftover Apollo spacesuits because the new shuttle spacesuit hasn't been produced yet. And you used to be able to get in the suit and be what's called a, a suited subject, you know, the, the pretend astronaut sometime. What was that like? What went through your head while you were getting to do that? Well, I became Sonny Hickam instantly. I said, oh my gosh, you know, I'm doing something. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an astronaut. I'm in you know, space. I'm in a space. Actually, just to touch a spacesuit was just amazing, you know. So uh, they were the old, uh, actually the Skylab suits, and they leaked like sieves. The bubbles came out <laughs> everywhere. I remember that. Yeah, what they did, um, as you know, is um, we wanted to test the procedures for everything that was being done first. 
before you guys came up and ran through them. So uh, they would take some of us scuba certified engineers and put us in these suits and we would go down on the mock-ups, whatever they happened to be, and try to run through the procedures as best we could. And not being as thoroughly familiar with being in a suit as you were, but still, nonetheless, we could set up foot restraints. To work in space, you need foot restraints so that you're not twirling all around while you're trying to move a ratchet Essex wrench, right? So I got to do that a few times in the old Skylab suits and then later with the, the new EMU suits, which were really, really cool. As long as you got the hard upper torso that fit. Yes. And I've been in one in a small, and oh my gosh, uh, I don't know which one that they had for you, but I remember one time they'd set it up for somebody else and it was small and I went in and it's like right on the collarbone and just rubbed me absolutely wrong. It's like there was a common and classic set of finger, lost fingernails and bruises for anyone who worked in the suits here on Earth. Your fingernails would get mashed in space as well because you want your glove to fit very tightly. But the stuff on your collarbone and stuff was when you would you fall around inside the suit that little bit because you're still in gravity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When you turn upside down, you boom, yeah. fall right on it. It just hits perfectly on the collarbone. And then, of course, we didn't necessarily have the gloves that fit us very well either. And and you jam your fingertips up against that and they would just be blue when you came out. But And you also had to have very good gripping strength, hand strength. And and I think I recall that you had one of those those things, those squeeze things. that, that Those little up. spring, hand builder springs. Yeah. yeah. Some, some of the other crew members did as well because you needed that to be very, very strong because of the pressure. Uh, you know, you're all pressurized. And so you're basically having to move all that, all that around. Well, the way to think about that, uh, as I suggest to people, is imagine one of those long skinny balloons that a performer at a circus uses to twist into animals. Right. If you take it filled up and try to bend it without making the twist, it's really impossible. Well, your suit is a big balloon and it, it has straps and pieces of metal where you have joints to help you make the kind of break that the circus guy would achieve by a twist, but it still takes more effort to bend that balloon than it does to just bend your arm, say. Yeah. And one thing about you, Kathy, was you didn't want to cheat. And we learned after a while, the astronauts who wanted to cheat, and that meant be foot heavy. They they wanted because they would complain, you know, and so we would we would add a little weight to their feet and kind of help them out. We shouldn't have done it, but you know, they wanted to be foot heavy, so it was easier to get in the foot restraint. Exactly. Yeah, it's easier. Yeah, yeah. and you know, you're in the upright position mostly while you're working. Some of it, of course, with the Hubble, you were upside down, and it didn't really matter. But to get into the foot restraints, especially for the the first guys doing EVA training, getting in those foot restraints was not easy. You can't see your feet. Uh, without bending over and you can't feel your feet either so it's not necessarily getting in the stirrups as you well know but you've got to remember to push down your heel and then click in and that can be the hard part so we would see the new guys doing this you know back and forth trying to Their click foot in. flailing around he was to sneak up there and maybe help them just a little bit you know to get going and and and, and usually they weren't aware of it but if you got caught and I think you you fussed at me one time or somebody uh, fussed at me. No, it wasn't you. It was Bruce. Bruce was fussed at <laughs> Don't touch my feet. I can do this. You know, okay. All right. <laughs> but do you remember a particularly favorite test that you got to do as a suited subject? Uh, yeah, there was a, um, working on the uh, Hubble uh, repair mission, there was a cover 
to one of the optics on, on the Hubble um, that, that before you worked on it, you had to put on this cover. It's probably the wide field camera. It probably was. And it was, you know, circular thing. And it was, oh, it was tough to get that thing on there. And uh, I don't know why they designed it the way they did, but the first couple of engineers we put in there couldn't do it. And they finally turned to me and it's like, you know, uh, all right, let's give Homer a try. And I was able to get it on there, but it wasn't easy. But I just remember how happy everybody was when I did get it on. I think um, whatever astronaut it was that came up went, Boop, it's there, you know, and it's like, oh, doggone. But uh, anyway, <laughs> I, I loved working on that, on the Hubble. It was, it was fun. And also we worked on the, this idea of um, maybe cleaning out a, a shuttle external tank. Right, to use as a module of a space station, right. early idea. It was a big argument with Skylab was whether it would be a wet workshop or a dry workshop. And, and that is that if it's wet, you go in and you move, remove the fuel tanks and then you put in all of the instrumentation and everything. So there was a lot of discussion about doing it that way. And so with the external tank, as you know, it could actually go into orbit. The shuttle could have carried it on into orbit and dropped it off. And there it was, just this great big volume that maybe you could do something with. And so uh, one of the Marshall uh, engineering teams came up with the idea of turning the external tank into a, a space station. <laughs> more, more bother than worth, as it turned out. Well, it's covered by this orange foam which uh, you've got to get through and it, and there are you could put hatches in it uh, you know in advance and uh, we found out uh, I was working as water safety which is basically you're on the surface watching everybody go and so they had put in razor wire around it that would be the idea that you would pull this razor wire and it would cut the orange uh, foam off where the hatch was and what that turned into was a massive underwater flying saucer when that thing came off we did not reckon that it was foam being buoyant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> very buoyant. And I'm watching this thing come up like, wow, you know, it's just like this big orange garbage can top coming at me and it's slipping and sliding and I'm trying to get out of its way and boom, it flew right up, bounced off one of the girders at the top and came back to try to get me coming back down. It's like, well, you know, we maybe should have considered that, <laughs> but we decided it's way too difficult to turn the ET into a space station. <laughs> so astronauts are not the only people you trained to be familiar with what spacewalking was like. Some people will know that there's an underwater training experience for participants at space camp. They probably wouldn't have known that you played a central role uh, in setting that up and starting it. Tell me a bit about where that inspiration came from and you had a very one particularly very famous student that you trained to work in that helmet. <laughs> I did. Um, so it was 1986. Uh, it was right after Challenger. I was over in Japan when uh, Challenger happened. So I was uh, just trying to get to know what we need to do to train the first Japanese astronauts. And so um, uh, after Challenger, as you know, the space program was just the, the human space program was stopped for a while. We weren't quite sure when it was going to start up again. So I was brought back and I was working Space Lab and all those missions had been put off for years and years and years. And so I, I did work on the solid rocket motor redesign a little bit with uh, John Thomas, but mostly I just had a lot of paperwork to do. It was pretty boring. And I heard that Space Camp over at the United States Space and Rocket Center was going to put in a swimming pool with the idea of training the young people on neutral buoyancy simulation, but it was just a swimming pool is what they were going to do, maybe five feet deep or something. And 
Uh, I got it in my head that what they really needed was their own neutral buoyancy simulator. I went over with charts and diagrams and everything on how this might be done and talked to Ed Buckby, who was the director at that time. And he was a fellow West Virginian. I didn't know that, but he was. And that made him a little bit favorable toward this crazy idea. And ultimately, we built the underwater astronaut trainer, which is a mini clone of uh, our big neutral buoyancy simulator in that it's a cylinder has portholes all around it. Uh, of course, the neutral buoyancy simulator was 75 feet across and 40 feet deep. And the underwater astronaut trainer at space camp is 25 feet deep and 30 feet across. So it's not quite as big, but the idea is the same. And in order to train, not space campers, which kind of top out at 12 years old, but space academy students, which are high school and college students, uh, I got the idea of, actually building our own EMU suit, our own spacesuit, using a French-made llama bubble helmet. Ed bought off on that too. I don't know why, but he did. And so we bought two of them. So at night I would come in and I had team Linda, uh, LT, my, my wife, uh, wasn't my wife at that time, but she was one of the team. I had a little company called Deep Space that uh, NASA let me uh, form uh, as long as I didn't use any NASA stuff. And I didn't too much, although I did take little pieces of the Hubble Space Telescope. But otherwise, I mean, that's just a rumor. But uh, <laughs> Bruce McCandless, you know what? This box looks modified. And so <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> out of the can yard, we had old Hubble pieces, you know, the frame and so on. And so I was able to, and some old foot restraints. So I was able to actually set up a, a little uh, a little Hubble in there for the kids to work with wearing this French made bubble helmet, uh, which had a neck down. So it was real tight. It wasn't very comfortable, but um, we had some, you know, special students and, and Linda probably had more hours in this llama helmet than anybody. But so we did that and, and it worked great. And then one day I was sitting minding my own business as I always do. And I got this phone call. The guy said, um, are you Homer Hickam? Are you the expert in the llama helmet? And and it turned out that this was one of the producers of the David Letterman show. I thought it was my friend, Carl Spurlock, who was a man of many, many voices. And I laughed and I said, is this you, Carl? You know, that kind of stuff. But anyway, um, they had talked to the French manufacturer of the Llama Helmet and they'd said, trying to get them to come over to New York. And the idea was that David Letterman would have an all underwater show and everybody would wear these Llama bubble helmets. And uh, the French basically said, well, you know, um, the expert in the United States is this guy named Homer Hickam down in Huntsville, Alabama. And so they had called me and uh, first I said, no, I wasn't interested. I, I was busy, you know, <laughs> um, but they said, well, we'll pay you. And I went, oh, really? And so we flew up one of our llama helmets to New York, New York and at a um, Red Roof Motel in New Jersey across the river from New York. David Letterman shows up and I started talking to him about what we were going to do with the helmet and all that. And, and I found out he was not a scuba diver. He didn't know, you know, he didn't know why you shouldn't hold your breath or anything. Not that it was that deep there, but it only takes a few feet to embolize. You know that. Yeah, your, your introductory training to him reminded me of the introductory training you had back in Puerto Rico from your Navy buddies. <laughs> That's right. But, you know, we had pioneered this method of getting these young people who've never been in the water, a lot of them never been in the water before, down to 25 feet within an hour. You know, so we had pioneered how this really worked and we could do it. And But it's safe. you got, you got to be like a hand ready to grab, you know, within the arm's reach. 
and be prepared. And we, you know, have a wonderful safety record there, knock on wood. Anyway, so I taught David. I went through all the stuff with David, just like he was a space camper, space academy student. He was at first nervous, but then he got into it. And uh, then we got him into the llama helmet and we went underwater and we had an underwater ph photographer there, video guy, and he took pictures and so on. And I came out and David was just like, he just loved me. You know, like any, any instructor that you like that does well, <laughs> he, he, <laughs> kind of, he was like, oh. Certain affection. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, David and I had some nice conversation. We didn't really talk about the show. And then I asked the producer, what's your plan <laughs> Exactly. And he said, well, we're going to, it's going to be cool. We're going to build an exact precise set as, and this, they were with NBC at that time on the NBC late night with Letterman show, but we're going to put it in the mystic aquarium. It's going to be great. And we're not even going to mention that it's underwater, but David's going to come out in the llama helmet fish going to be swimming around. He's going to do his monologue. It's going to be great. You're going to, we're going to bring you back here. You're going to train Terry Gar. She's going to be the guest on this and you know she'll be sitting there and we're going to do the whole show underwater and I went well it's interesting I said do you have any idea what the temperature of the mystic aquarium is and he said well yeah I've looked it up 60 degrees he said and that's great because David really loves to have a cold studio and I said, you're gonna have 10 people in. <laughs> and I said well there's about a million gallons in the mystic aquarium and uh human body has a couple of gallons of blood in it and it's 60 degrees and 98.6 degrees. It's going to be trying to get, you know, I was trying to just talk. The 98.6 is going to try to become 60 pretty 60. fast. I'm trying to talk to a TV, NBC TV producer. So I was, I, I'm trying to simplify everything as much as I possibly can. And I said, you know, at the end of David's monologue, his teeth is really going to be chattering. And while he's interviewing Terry Gar, he'll probably go unconscious. And I said, at the end of the show, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> <laughs> and he's going, why? You know, and it's like, okay, you know, if you get a suit and maybe pump hot water in a blow, it came really just like, no, we yep. can't do this. Which is <laughs> which is why we never saw an underwater Letterman show. Exactly. <laughs> however, however, I have to tell you that David read Rocket Boys and wanted me to be on his show just for Rocket Boys. He had read, he didn't realize that I was the guy that, that Scuba trained him there. And then it sank in, but I was actually, I mean, I was at the Venice Film Festival, you know, and I, I couldn't get, go to the Letterman show, but anyway, uh, so, but I did it for when the movie came out. I was actually on book tour over in the UK is what it was for Rocket Boys. So I wasn't able to make a show, but then when the movie came out, I actually got to fly the Concorde back. Universal Studios flew me back, and it's like, I could have gone commercial, but I claimed all kinds of things. So they flew me back on the Concorde to New York in time to make the David Letterman show. And before the show, the producer pulled me aside and said, you know, David really wants to show the video of you guys underwater in, the, in that Red Roof uh, motel. But if we do that, we don't have time to show a clip of October Sky. So he said, whatever you want to do. And I went, show the underwater video. It's great. Good on you. can't imagine how much Universal Studios hated <laughs> <laughs> Very I funny. <laughs> one, one other little tidbit for listeners who might not know, but the idea for Space Camp was actually Werner von Braun's. You've got baseball camp, you've got football camp, and kind of just like, like your uh, school teacher. How come we got all these camps and awards for sports? Let's do this. Let's have something similar for kids that are interested in science and technology, or like Dean Kamen's U.S. First Robotics. Let's 
let's make this the excitement and drama and celebration of being smart in science and math as cool as being good on a football field. Yeah. And, you know, I, I got to be on the board. I'm still on the board of the Space and Rocket Center and at Space Camp, Space Academy. We've got uh, robotics camp now. We've got cyber camp, aviation challenge. We've got all kinds of things uh, going on out there. And I have to tell you that, I mean, to go out there, I like talking to teachers. Teachers come during the summer. So uh, I go out and talk to them when they're here because I get you get more bang for the buck when you talk to the teachers because then they go out and talk to their students. And I, I only have a limited time usually, but I'm out there quite a bit now, especially after the pandemic. We we went through a really, really hard time financially and everything, but we're coming back now. We've got 50% of our student population. Oh, that's great. Yeah. When you go there, part of it, it's not all just space and technology. It's also team building that occurs. And that's why our business plan is very difficult for us to do it virtually. We want people on our campus Yeah. Uh, because we're also team building and teaching leadership skills and that kind of thing. And it's um, really, really cool to see some of these nerdy kids come in who've probably been picked on their entire life uh, about being smart. And you can just see the, the glow that occurs when they realize they're mostly amongst their peers. And being smart is a thing to be, <laughs> right? But we also get the jocks, we get the, we get the athletes and so on. And what is really cool, and I've seen this any number of times, that they become very protective of the, the people that have been picked on because they're now part of the team. Not only that protective, but also they'd start depending on the smart, <laughs> the smart kid. The smart kid's going to get them through this simulation that, uh, that we're about to do. So, so seeing that kind of value that comes out of this program is just amazing. And yeah, Vernon Von Braun started it, but... Buckby really created it. Yeah, Ed yeah. Buckby, uh, of course, had to take this idea and... and Turn it into something. Make it work. Yeah. yeah. In those pairings of the jocks and the nerds amongst your campers... Uh, you talked sort of about the change of the jock, sort of seeing value and respect and dependency in the nerdy, nerdy person who's kind of becoming a friend. What happens on the reverse side? Because you know, <laughs> I would imagine the nerds have maybe felt like the jocks are some, you know, they're the unapproachable gods, social gods of the campus. Do they discover that they too have more in common with the person they thought was so strange than they knew before? I think they do. And it is, um, space camp is an immersive experience. I mean, it's like, boom, you're into it and uh, you're going to classes and you're having simulations and there's a lot of competition between the different teams and so on. And some of it is physical. I mean, it's not like, you know, running miles and miles and that, that kind of thing, but it's like being in, in you know, the slings that you go up and hanging and, and having to work on different things and, and the multi-axis trainer and all that kind of stuff. And so the athlete tends to maybe do a little bit better than that. The hand-eye coordination is a lot better. And so you pair these, uh, and our trainers, our counselors are excellent in, in pairing the, the right kids off together and, and their strengths and their weaknesses and, and combining. So, so yeah, we see that going both ways. And out of this, they just become lifelong friends. It's really, really cool. We have a huge alumni association at Space Camp and uh, all the other Academy and, and Aviation Challenge and all that. And they're very loyal to us and to each other. And it's just a wonderful thing to say. That's really cool. Well, I wanted to touch briefly on one other part of your space lab and space shuttle work. And then obviously really want to get your opinion on 
some of the modern day goings on and future goings on on the space frontier. But since we've just been talking about teams and dynamics, you saw a lot of astronauts go by as pairs of astronauts training for spacewalks and the work you did for several years training space lab payload crews, astronauts and visiting scientists. And some of that work took you to Moscow very shortly after the Soviet Union fell and then to Japan for an intense period. I'm curious what range, what variety of team dynamics and intersection of the team with different cultures, what your reflections are on those dynamics? Because you know, astronauts sort of a generic term that maybe most people seem to think are all cut out of cookie cutter out of the same piece of cloth. But there's actually some quite different personality types and approaches to the role and approaches to leading among members of the astronaut corps. And I, I know your experience in Japan had some particularly interesting dynamics to it. So talk to us a bit about the grown-up challenge of building high-performance teams out of a cluster of rather different individuals. Yeah, well, um, before you know, we talk about individuals, let's just talk about cultures. There's cultures within NASA, especially for those of us who are in, were in the training world had to understand. And there was Johnson Space Center in Houston who was very protective of um, having the astronaut office there. And there's a lot of power in having the astronaut office there for, for obvious reasons. Everybody wants to please the astronaut office as best they can if that belongs to Johnson Space Center. And then we were having astronauts come from Johnson Space Center to train at Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville. We were supposed to be the engine guys, right? We weren't, that was not supposed to be our expertise. So there was some clash of culture right there on how that would be done. And we were saying, well, we're training our astronauts on science payloads, and that's where that's how we're 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 doing it, and that's why we have a little piece of the pie. And fortunately, the training people and in, in Houston and the training people in Huntsville, we respected each other. We learned to work together probably better at our level than they did at higher management, where they tended because you're talking about money, you know, lots of money involved. Yeah, there's a lot of competition between especially Goddard and Marshall and Johnson centers. Very much so. Ames and Glenn kind of watching and rubbing their hands. I hope they fall flat on their face because we're going to get their money. But um, so at our level, we had to learn to work together and uh, and also work with the astronaut office as well. It's such a thrill to that, you know, in our day, I was able to just actually go into the astronaut office, CB office and open the door and walk in and go up the stairs and walk through the halls and look in the halls and see who was here and there and can't do that today. But that was really cool. And I had a purpose actually for being there and talk to some of the crew members and, and that kind of thing. So, but that was that culture that we had to work with right there. Uh, we knew that there was some resentment about coming up to Huntsville and train, and rightfully so. I mean, you took you away from your friends and family, your home. You had to get in a T-38, and especially for you guys working in a tank, there was decompression problems, jumping in a T-38 and trying to fly back because you got important meetings in Houston or wherever it happened to be. And we recognized all that. We worked very well together. And then working with the Japanese, I mean, that's a completely different culture, totally, utterly, completely different culture that wasn't totally recognized by anybody at NASA. And a lot of agreements had been made on how the crews would be trained. And then, of course, our astronauts are used to uh, saying, hey, this doesn't work for me. It's like, I don't want to do that. And, and that goes totally counter 
to the culture in Japan. It is the professor in front of the class, you honor them no matter good, bad, or indifferent. So we had that, that culture, the astronaut training culture brought over and just inserted into Japan. I was the training manager of that first mission. And I, you know, I, one, of the, one of the things about being a training manager though, our training, our whole group, both in Houston and, and Huntsville was that we recognized that we were seeing a part of the crews, the, these people who, who were under all of this stress, we were seeing them with everything stripped away quite often. And um, that we had a certain responsibility to them to not be talking about that, even amongst ourselves very much, but recognizing that, that maybe there are problems at home that are causing some problems, maybe some physical problems that, they're, that, that they can't tell you know, uh, about and we see. And, and so, so we, we wanted to keep that very close. I mean, I, I had crew members come to me and just, tell me stuff about what was going on. And it was like being a father confessor uh, sometimes. And you, yeah, but. You, you heard it, but you went on. And, and of course they were professional and, and they just needed to get something off their chest. And I get that. And, but writing this book, um, Don't Blow Yourself Up, I was faced with this problem of how to write about a very serious situation and how to kind of weave through that, still tell the story without embarrassing any, I just want to embarrass myself, you know, <laughs> I'm the idiot here. <laughs> and uh, so I, hopefully I was able to win my way through that. Uh, we'll see. We'll see if anybody's talking to me after the book comes out. For one person's view, I, I think you did it very well. And, I, and I'm glad you did it because I think there's there's valuable insight there for anyone who's working with a cross-disciplinary or cross-national team. And certainly your tale, the way you, you put yourself in the role of being mediator, you were the shuttle diplomat between the different elements of this dynamic. appreciate and, you saying that. <laughs> well, came away with a, a successful crew, a successful mission, and a yep. very high regard, by the, held in high regard by the crew and held in high regard by all the key folks in Japan, which is... Uh, no surprise to any of us who have worked with you, but quite a testament to your skills. Well, maybe, but I appreciate that. The Japanese have this, this culture and essentially they're astronauts. It was like they loved space so much. They were just willing to do anything, to endure whatever it took uh, to, to fly into space. And, and, and that was cool. So training them was, you know, just, just relatively easy. However, I think probably more training than was required because it's easy if you've got somebody just willing to take anything, you know, just dump it on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a danger too, to have that. So, so the two American and Japanese astronaut culture joining together, I think you came out with a, a good system, but it took, took some, some heartache, uh, hard times to, to get there. Now, in terms of the Russians, the Russians, uh, I went over there, just as you said, not too long after the Soviet Union fell. And my, my uh, job was to essentially hack out with the Houston folks, the training folks, with the Russian training folks on how to train the astronauts and the cosmonauts. And, and this is all for space station. This is for space station. And so how are we going to do this? Different from space lab. And we recognized that, that this was going to be different from space lab but we needed to figure it all out. And so, and, and also, you know, I became a kind of a bureaucratic infighter. That's, I mean, a federal bureaucratic infighter is just the worst kind of person. You just throw out everything except you want to win. You want to win for your center. You want to 
get as big a piece of pie as you possibly can. So, so I became this, this fearsome creature. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it was sad over in Russia, in Moscow. It was, I mean, these were the people who launched Sputnik, right? They have very proud space program. And the Soviet Union had fallen and with it, any possibility of funding their space program. It basically was just had moribund. It had stopped. Well, the country was broke. It was broke. And we would see these poor people out in the streets just selling their goods. You know, the little stuff that they had probably valued. They'd gone maybe once in their life to the Black Sea and maybe bought a little figurine, you know, and they're out trying to sell this. I mean, and the Olympic Stadium there had turned into kind of a homeless center. And I did a lot of running. I was jogging a lot and I would run past that center and there were people in there with the trash cans and the fire and, and laying on the on the grates for warmth. And um, and then, of course, there wasn't anything in the stores uh, really to buy. And, um, and and those same people that we were negotiating with across the table uh, were two things about them. Not only were they struggling to support their family, I don't know that they were necessarily getting paid or paid very much. These were the same men who launched Sputnik, which was just incredible to me. <laughs> Yeah, to get to know them where you get to know the Russians, frankly, is not across the conference table, but in the party afterward, that's when you get to know the Russians. And so over vodka, I told them stories about growing up in Colwood and just before I wrote Rocket Boys and saw Sputnik fly over and uh, that they were really impressed that I recognized what they had done to really begin the space age. And so they said, you know, you want to see Sputnik one? And I went, yeah, I saw it. I saw it flew over COVID. And they said, no, no, we made two. We have one of them in the warehouse and we're going to put it in a museum here fairly soon. But would you like to come and see it? And I, I took that as a great honor. And it was a scene right out of Indiana Jones with, with these crates piled high and they opened it up and there set what could have the been. The other Sputnik. Yeah. There it was. And it very was cool. Funny. And they didn't care if I touched it. And I did. And my fingerprints are on it. I'm sure they wiped it off now for in the museum, but but still it was the most amazing thing. But now in culture, they trained their cosmos, they basically told their cosmos what to do and when to do it. If they didn't do it, you're out of here. So it's very militaristic type of thing. And so now we're dealing with running our astronauts through their same program. And that's just not going to work. And so a lot of discussion went back and forth on uh on that. And of course, we sent some crew members over early for the Mir program and they ran through all that. And we didn't have to do this. The astronauts themselves basically said, no, I'm not doing that or whatever it was. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and the cosmonauts are going, hmm, we can get away with some stuff here. <laughs> uh, so that was good for, again, for both programs. I mean, some things the Russians would not bend on. It's like, yes, you are going to go down the Black Sea. Yes, you are going to put on all that hot uh, stuff, uh, the, you know, the long johns and all that. And you are going to put on that suit and you are going to bob around the Black Sea until we pop the thing off and you are going to get out of it inside the capsule. And they did that. Uh, yeah. Although it's like, okay, now how often is, or is that going to happen? But that was part of their, you know, the little harassment that they like to do. So Johnson uh, Space Center in Houston and Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, we agreed on how we would train for a station, which basically meant we lost a little and that we didn't get the crew members to come up to Huntsville and train anymore. But that, you know, after our experience with Space Lab J, especially, we realized that that was not 
not always uh, uh, going to work and sending them over to the PI sites for months and months at a time. And really astronauts are people and they deserve a home life. And that was maybe how I brought value to the program by having this experience already that we needed to give in on this, that it was not fair to have astronauts bouncing all over the place all the time and that they deserved a home life. And so Huntsville gave in on that. And then Houston gave in to allow us to continue the science training. We still had that responsibility. And then we got the Russians. They cut down on the amount of training for the crews and, and that they would send cosmonauts who were flying on the shuttle to come to Houston and train. And so, so it all just kind of, you know how you do, you muddle through. You and triangulate out. Yeah. That nobody likes and it's perfect, right? <laughs> That's what we did. Well, let's touch quickly, at least on more current events. You served on the National Space Council uh, in the previous administration, and there's a lot, you know, there's a lot going on. There's the whole Artemis back to the moon effort for the United States, open question about the future of the International Space Station, at least the future of the United States role in it. Uh, It's been approved out to 2024. Some say that's enough, we should move on. Some say it's a great investment, still worth continuing. There's a big push towards tourism with maybe the first two space tourist commercial flights yet this month as we record this. Uh, And another big topic is the question of what's called ISRU, in situ resource utilization, which basically means should we mine the moon or mine asteroids? So all of those things, I'm sure, came before the Space Council during your tenure. Give me your take on a couple of them. It did. And I'm still a member of the what to call the user's advisory group, the UAG, until further notice. I'm waiting for that notice at any moment. I don't know. But uh, along with a lot of leaders in the space industry, like uh, Gwen uh, Shotwell is a member of that, and Tori Bruno, they're truly users. The vice president, Mike Pence, chose me because he read Rocket Boys in my book called Back to the Moon. <laughs> So he liked that. And it's it's great to get a call from, I usually ignore 202 area codes, but for some reason, <laughs> one, one time it was Mike Pence calling to ask me if I wanted to be. And it's like, yeah, well, I think, yeah, I'll do that. So that was kind of cool. And I'm a, a moon guy. I, I like the idea of going to the moon. I want to go up and just mine the blame thing. Okay. I'm a Colwood boy. I just go up and use it. You know, it's, it's our eighth continent. It got carved off the earth about 3 billion years ago. It's, up there, it's got some really cool natural resources that we can probably use, and we need to go focus on the moon. That's what I want to do. What's your take on space tourism? I'd love to be one of them, uh, if that will tell you. Okay. (laughs) I'm all for space tourism, but I think we have to be a little bit cautious about it. This is still a very dangerous enterprise. We've been down that road already, Kathy, right? We saw with Challenger when the teacher in space was put on board, I think without proper orientation as to the dangers. And we tried to make it, uh, oh, it's all very safe and all that. And we knew it wasn't safe. Well, we took what really was still an experimental airplane, the space shuttle, and just declared it to be operational for a host of budget and political reasons. But it's it's kind of like saying a top fuel drag racer is now your family car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I mean, I didn't know this entirely while I was working for NASA, but over a period of time, I've studied it and so on. And I, I realize now that the astronauts knew a lot more about all the ins and outs of the shuttle than we did, who just worked peripherally on a lot of things. And so you knew the risk. 
and you were willing to take that risk. And it was definitely a risk every time you got into that. Thing. Oh, yeah. And it was an article of faith. Uh, and I was just talking to to Hoot Gibson about his flight. Uh, I think it was SDS 27 that was almost turned into a disaster and he knew it it, it could. And again, it's debris falling falling off the external right. tank. But... Could have been uh, just the way we lost Columbia exactly. with debris yeah. from the tank. And it, that could have happened years earlier on STS-27. And so the shuttle was very, very dangerous, but it was a magnificent vehicle. And it did magnificent things for the country and for the world, really. But I do think we have to be cautious. I think, you know, the New Shepard and um, the uh, aircraft that, uh, I guess it's Virgin... Virgin Galactic. That yep. is flying. That, they look pretty safe, but they're not perfectly safe. There's no, no such thing as a perfectly safe rocket. <laughs> well, because, because rockets are basically bombs that are, yeah, you know, are. well-behaved bombs. Yeah, you direct the flimsy yep. element of it down. Hopefully it'll go in that direction. But So I, I do want us to maybe be a little bit more cautious than we are uh, right now. I was there at Space and Rocket Center here in Huntsville when uh, the vice president announced Artemis, what became Artemis in 2024. And I was sitting beside Buzz Aldrin and uh, Buzz was going, it was having a little trouble hearing and was going, Omer, Omer, what did he say? And I, and I said, he said, we're going back to the moon, Buzz. Oh, good. How good? I said in 2024 and he went, what? <laughs> <laughs> when do you think we'll actually get there? Uh, it really depends on what happens with this first SLS launch. That's just NASA's space launch system, new rocket. In my mind, uh, this is experimental rocket. And they're already saying, and the next one, we're going to fly a crew. <laughs> so maybe it'll work out perfectly. They've certainly worked on it long enough. If it works, then I would say maybe 2026. If it doesn't work, then we see SpaceX coming along and whatever whatever crazy calendar schedule that, uh, and I say, I say crazy in a very affectionate way uh, for Elon. I'm just so totally, utterly impressed by what SpaceX has done. I have to say that I was their cheerleader before the first Falcon was launched. I heard about him. I'd met Elon years ago in space camp. He became, he came there as an adult after he sold um, PayPal. And he was there and I didn't recognize him anything special, but there's a picture of him and me. We were launching a model rocket together. And uh, I guess it was in the early 2000s. And then he started SpaceX and I heard about it. And we had that kind of a drought period after Columbia. And it looked like the shuttle was going to be retired. And we didn't know what was coming along behind it. And, uh, and I was just like, I'm going to cheerlead these guys on. They're out in Kwajalein trying to launch this rocket. So I was sending emails out to Elon after the first one blew up and the second one didn't work. And I was, you know, carry on, carry on, carry on. And I can still remember that when they brought the Falcon to the Cape and there was one of them where they had um, failure right at ignition, poof, and it didn't go anywhere and it stopped. And I was emailing, I don't know if it was uh, Elon, but somebody in the organization, I was going, oh, well, you know, um, pull it together and try again tomorrow. Within three hours, they launched that thing. Wow. <laughs> I knew at that moment, there's something special going on here with this organization. Wow. You know, NASA wouldn't dare do that. And, no. and because you're spending, you know, federal money, it's the taxpayer's money. If some uh, mission manager said, oh, let's go out there and wire this thing together and launch, you know, you, I don't know, you'd be thrown in underground jail. 
<laughs> when do you think people will get to Mars and what flag do you think they'll have on their shoulder? Well, I have to say I'm not a big Mars guy. I, I'm a moon guy. I think that we ought to focus on the moon because I really do think that there is a return of resources from the moon that we'll never get from Mars. And there are so many liabilities about trying to live on Mars that I think a lot of times we just cast it off. Oh, never mind that the atmosphere is poison. Never mind that the soil is poison. Never mind it's 81 degrees below zero constantly. Never mind all that. And it's only a third. And there's no, by the way, no magnetic shield. You're constantly being barred by rate. Never mind. It's going to be great to go live on Mars. Well, how about just go explore it with a, a sortie crew? Maybe artificial. Maybe uh, I like to say, uh, you know, Ken and Buffy AI will go, will go explore Mars. <laughs> we, we will live through their little heads and we can see and move around and do everything. <laughs> All right. <laughs> If like everything else, I will be proved wrong on this. I have no doubt. And people will look back at your podcast someday and say, ah, Homer, he was just not a visionary. He didn't know what he's talking about. Look, we got cities on Mars. And no, no I'm, I'm with, I'm totally with you on living on Mars. I think that's nuts, but <laughs> yeah, I always say if you, you really want to live on Mars. Okay. Let me give you a challenge where I go out and hunt dinosaurs every year out in Eastern Montana, uh, in the Hell Creek formation, just go out there without any anything. I mean, you, I even give you a log cabin. <laughs> go out there and live for a couple of weeks and tell me how much you love it. You know, but you're living off the land. That's like, eh, you know, most people are going to get pretty homesick, I think, pretty fast. But let's say that we do it and we want to do it. And for a lot of other reasons other than it makes sense, we're, we're doing it for nationalistic reasons and so on. I do think that we certainly have, I say we, an American either NASA or an American company right now has the edge if we just push through and are willing to sacrifice. We're going to have to sacrifice lives to do it. And if somebody is willing to do that, then I think that we could maybe be there in the 2030s sometime if you really just pushed it forward. But I think, you know, engineers are going to start talking about to Elon about the Starship and what it's really capable of and what it's going to take to make that long transit and what kind of shape the crew is going to be on the other end and then have to take a bunch of G's and try to land this thing. So there's going to be a lot of not only engineering, but philosophical discussions that will need to occur. But we know that um, sometimes a very, very special type of person gets an idea in his head or her head and they just push forward and they make it happen no matter what. So so this is a, such an exciting time to live, though, those of us who love the space business, because we're in a transition time and we don't know exactly what's coming out on the other side, uh, whether we're going to be a full blooming uh, space civilization or it's just going to be just just little you know, spurts to the different planets and so on with humans. We just don't know yet. And I think a lot of it, though, depends on what we find on the moon. And that is, are there resources there that we can truly use? We know there's water. As far as I know, we have never looked at a drop of water off Earth. We don't know what's inside that water on the moon. There may be evidence of life that not that evolved on the moon, but maybe came from Earth. Because we've been sharing our DNA for you know, millennia as asteroids hit back and forth. We, there may be little 
dinosaur fossils up. up for all, <laughs> all right, now you're pushing it, Homer. <laughs> Here's a dinosaur minding his own business. He's walking along and boom, an asteroid hits him. He gets thrown up to the moon and there he lands. He's waiting in the Shackleton crater for us. <laughs> I mean, I think there are some real surprises uh, coming along on the moon. And I just like love for us to focus on that. But I, you know, I'm realist to know that Mars is in the heads right now of a lot of people that Mars is where we're going and we're just going to the moon so we can go to Mars. Uh, I, I like to say going to touch base on the moon and going to Mars is like the pilgrims deciding to touch base on New England and then heading straight to Antarctica. It's that's, that's <laughs> all right. That's a, that's a good. That is a very good image. Well, Homer, I I've kept you well past the promised time, but I think you and I both knew that was likely to happen once we once we get started on our favorite conversations, which are Please. stories that can be told and great adventures in space and underwater. So I can't thank you enough for spending this time with me and, and allowing us to explore with you. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. And uh, I've always appreciated our friendship. And uh, this has been a very special time for me. And uh, thank you for, for having me. And I, I just enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Tremendously enjoyable. And do keep an eye out for Don't Blow Yourself Up and learn even more of Homer's great, fascinating and fun stories. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.